Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash of the Articulate Fly, and on this episode I interview George Daniel of Living on the Fly. The motto of his company is Love to Fish, Live to Teach. We take a deep dive into the folks that helped George develop into the angler and educator that we all know, and he also shares with us his approach for coaching and mentoring to improve the performance of his angling buddies and clients. Before we move on, it'd be great if you could give us a review on the podcatcher of your choice. And if you haven't yet, please check out the Articulate Fly apps. All you have to do is search the Articulate Fly in the Apple App Store or in the Android Store of your choice. I also want to give a shout out to our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by the 20th Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. The event's going to be January 11th and 12th in Doswell, Virginia. And if you visit www.vaflyfishingfestival.org, or if you check out our event page, you can get all the latest information on speakers, vendors, and classes. Now on to our interview. Well, George, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Well, thanks for having me, Marvin. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm glad we were able to uh, to come up with a slightly different topic this evening and focus on coaching and mentoring. No, that's it's one of my, I guess you could say, one of the things I really have been enjoying within uh, recent years. I mean, the, the tips and the tactics are always good, but I guess you could say one of the things I've really tried to become better at in the recent years, you know, with uh, being a being a parent and then also with some of my, my work that I'm currently doing in the industry, it's really trying to focus from becoming a, a really good angler, you know, which is always on the goal, but learning how to teach those skills to other people. So uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to diving into it. But before we do that, um, why don't you catch us up on what you've been doing in your 2019 guide and travel season? It's part of the course. I mean, lots. I mean, I've been very fortunate. Had a great guide season, full plate, and then uh, doing all, most of the fly fishing shows uh, for the Ferenskis. Uh, that that kept me going uh, early in the season, along with countless speaking engagements and tours uh, throughout the country. So I, I've been I've been a lot of places this year. Just got back from a nice trip in Sacramento around Davis, uh, California, doing some stuff on Puda Creek. Uh, and now I'm back here, uh, wrapping up the, the guide season. Uh, but now also I'm teaching now at Penn state a little bit on a part-time basis. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been good. Uh, got some writing projects, uh, working on some DVDs, uh, in the future. So all in all, I'm just trying to, you know, keep the family fed and, uh, stay out of trouble. Well, there you go. Does anything stand out more than anything else? No, it's, 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 I think a lot of it's just, it's a balance. You know, one of the things, you know, within the industry you try to do is you try to create some, with any aspect of your life, is you try to create some balance with some things. You know, I like guiding. Uh, I love speaking. Um, I love writing. But if you, if I had to do those 365 days a year, each day, every day, I think I'd go crazy, especially if I had to guide, you know, 200 days consecutively on the water. So, no, for me, I really try to, to balance it out uh, and make and it makes it enjoy it. I, it allows me to take a break from one thing, focus on another thing for a little bit, and kind of keeps me refreshed and also keeps the, the gears moving. Uh, think about new ideas moving forward. Yeah, that's great. And you mentioned at the top of the show that you just started teaching at Penn State. You know, for our listeners that don't know, can you tell us a little bit about the history of that position? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Penn State. You know, we have a decent football team, and you know, in, in years past, you know, during the paternal years, I mean, we were known as linebacker university. But what a lot of people don't realize is that we're also known as fly fishing. You, we were the first credited fly fishing course in the United States. Um, basically, a gentleman, my mentor's mentor, uh, Joe Humphrey's mentor, 
who was George Harvey, started the angling class at Penn State University back in, in the 30s. Uh, and then it became the first credited course sometime, I think, in the you know 40s, maybe 44, 45. But since that time, uh, it's been part of the kinesiology department and it's been probably one of the most popular programs. So, you know, if you are you know taking a gym credit or you need like a, a gym, that, you know, gym credit, you can actually angle uh, for a credit. Uh, and it's it's been a great program uh, and, and a great class, and they've expanded that now to having several classes within that that program. But uh, it's been you know for me the angling program was everything. You know, as soon as I heard about you know you could actually teach and, and you know get credits at Penn State, you know, and learned about George Harvey, Joe Humphreys. I mean, those guys growing up. I mean, they were and they you know and Joe is still my my hero. I mean, just people who I absolutely idolized and. Uh, to be able to take over the position, you know, the, basically the nostalgia of it, to be able to take in, go into that program and teach the same classes and courses that Harvey did in the 30s and Joe did later in the 70s and 80s and so forth. Uh, for me, it's just an incredible honor to be able to kind of keep that torch uh, burning. Um, it's just uh, so for me, it's been it's really kind of a, a dream job uh, and something I've been dreaming about since I was 14 years old. Yeah, and that's really awesome when the stars line up like that. What's been the biggest surprise in your, I guess you've got, what, about three months under your belt. Uh, what's been the biggest surprise as you've uh, joined the faculty at Penn State? So for me, it's just, uh, the thing I, the thing that for me is most of my, you know, the students and people who I normally work with, they have some, you know, fishing background experience, you know, that they, they fly fish a little bit and they're kind of looking to up their game. What I loved about this class is 23 of the 24 kids that are in the class have zero fishing experience. I mean, not fly fishing, but zero fishing experience. So it's starting from ground zero and, and, and working your way up. And, and that is, that has forced me to completely like rethink the way I, I teach, because one of the things I, I like about the, you know, about the advanced folks, uh, you know, this, pros and cons, but with the, you know, more intermediate to advanced folks, they have usually a good solid foundation, you know, framework. So you can experiment, you can, you can talk about different grips, uh, you can talk about different casting planes and, and all that weird, you know, kind of technical stuff, but you can, you can go in these different directions. And what, if one doesn't work, it, it's perfectly fine because they, they can go back to the foundation and they can keep experimenting and eventually develop their own style. But with these kids, there is no groundwork. I mean, there is no framework. So I have had to be really super cautious in, in keeping things very simple um, and, and clear cut and trying to provide them just basically being a little bit more strict with saying, okay, this is how we do it. This is how we do it. Uh, and, and just keeping things a lot simpler uh, in, in the process and eventually getting these kids to the point where they have confidence that they can, if they want to, they can expand, you know, explore different avenues within fly fishing and eventually develop their own style. But for the beginning part of it is just keeping it incredibly simple. And for me, that has always been a challenge, uh, but something I think I've done really well at, uh, and I've spent hours and hours just thinking about my lesson plans going into each, uh, every class. And so far, uh, the kids at least know what end of the rod to hold, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. And, and you know, the, I think the, you know, the amazing thing is there are all these life lessons that we can take away from fishing. And, you know, to me, coaching and mentoring are important kind of, you know, regardless of whether you live as a competitor or whether you even fish. And, 
you know, I was really curious, George, you know, when did becoming an educator become such an important part of your angling life? Yeah, I would say a lot of, you know, I started really appreciating education and, and teaching. Uh, it wasn't even really fly fishing. It was in my later teens when I was in basketball, high school basketball, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17. But I had very, I mean, I have some athletic ability, uh, you know, I, I can, you know, bounce the ball a little bit, but I really did not have any good understanding about how the game was played. And still, even when I graduated, I had very little, but there were, I had a great coach early in my, in my freshman year. And I mean, in the progress I made that year was phenomenal. And then I didn't get any real good teaching until my senior year. And it wasn't even from my head coach. It was from a guy who took us to summer leagues that year uh, and, and worked with us. Uh, but just having that taught me the importance of just good instruction and understanding that not everyone's going to be the same. You know, we had a lot of kids who were naturally gifted and had just a natural inclination on how to play the game. I had, I had zero. I needed to have like a micro focus. I needed to be explained about how to read the defense, how to do, how to move, but basically how to be taught, how to think about my, my approach to basketball. And, and when I thought about that, I thought about my fly fishing. My fly fishing had basically been just stagnant. I mean, nothing uh, for years. I mean, I caught some fish, but I never really felt like I got any better. And after my basketball years, I really understood that, you know, I needed to find good instructors. And my, my father taught me and I had some local guys that helped me out. But, you know, they were not overly patient and they were not skilled. They were skilled anglers, but very poor in communicating those those concepts. And that's when, when I was in my teens, that's when I actually started developing part-time, getting part-time jobs, you know, mowing the yard and, and just doing anything, shoveling snow and starting to hire uh, educators because I wanted to up my game. And once I, and once I got one or two lessons, I mean, it, it was just amazing. Like when you go and you get a lesson, it doesn't matter if it's fly fishing or if you're playing a musical instrument, there are sometimes that you just have a couple of those like aha moments when things just click and where you go from, you know, you, you go from point A to point C in a short period of time. And just that that quick response and being able to make those leaps and bounds in your performance were just, I mean, to me, it was exhilarating. And and then once I got that, that just stoked me. So it got me so excited about the idea that maybe uh, I could maybe do this for a living, especially after spending time because I, I would I hired Joe a couple times and eventually he kind of took me under his wing as a, you know, as a protege. But just watching guys like Joe and seeing the impact that they had on people's lives, uh, not just in their fishing, but you know, when you teach someone to become a better angler, they enjoy themselves time on the water. And as a result, they're more productive in all aspects of their life. And, and that, as soon as I, I got some good instruction from guys like Joe and so forth, I mean, that, that just kind of set the course. Like I just, I knew like at age 16, like that's it, that this is all I want to do in my life. And I basically have set my entire life, uh, to kind of work towards becoming an educator in this industry. That's really neat. And to kind of follow up on that, did you find as you started down that journey that you were a born teacher or did you have to learn to teach? Oh, no, I, <laughs> I, I was, I was awful. I was horrible. I, and I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. I really am Marvin, but no, nothing for me comes easy, easy whatsoever. I mean, uh, like public speaking, I mean, I was terrified. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. Like I, was, I lived a very sheltered life. I mean, I was incredibly shy and, and still very, 
uh, I, I guess I guess I'm more of an introvert these days, you know, even though I love the presence of people, but I'm very shy, you know, introducing myself to, to groups. So, I mean, in college, my freshman year, one of our first classes I, I took was actually public speaking. And I remember like for three weeks, I mean, I was like dry heaving. I was getting sick at, you know, just thinking about the idea of actually having to speak to my group of 20 students in my class. Uh, but I, but again, it was just, you know, there was the light, which, you know, just my goal was to teach it. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. So any, any person basically during my college years, anything within a four to five hour drive, if anyone was willing, and, and I did it for free all that time just to get the experience. And Joe helped me out. He, he found some groups who were interested, but up to five hours, I would drive five hours in one direction just to speak to a group for free. And I was so stoked, but I was scared at the same point, but it was just repetition, just doing it over and over again, becoming confident. And then eventually, you know, understanding how to structure your lesson plans, how to structure programs and so forth. But no, it, it takes a lot of work. And even to the, to this day right now, like with my lesson plans, I mean, with Penn State, it, it's, it's a new type of teaching, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably spending anywhere from five to 10 hours a week, just thinking about how I'm going to teach it in that three hour period. Uh, so it's, it's not easy for me, but it's something that I enjoy. And when it's something that you enjoy, those 10 hours is really not work. So to speak, it's just, it's, it's just preparation and I enjoy the process. That's really neat, and I know you're a lifelong learner, and I know that you fish really deliberately, um, and I was really curious how that day-to-day fishing experience, because you also fish a lot, um, informs your teaching. No, it, it does. So it, it's it's interesting, because anymore, I, I fish more to like prepare for teaching stuff. I mean, like, you know, I fish for fun. Don't get me wrong. Like, I mean, like today, I was fishing with a good buddy of mine, like musky fishing. Musky fishing is kind of my it's something that I, you know, no one knows me for. and um, I'm not very good at it, but that's kind of what I love to do. But, you know, when I'm writing an article, I'm just wrapping up one for fly fisherman. I'm working on another one for fly fusion. And then, you know, with my lesson plans going on each week, it's like, if I'm, if I'm working on a article for nymphing on like skinny water, I mean, I will spend most of that week just finding skinny water and just experimenting and tinkering with those ideas. And even if it's just beginning fly casting, uh, working with my kids, I will go in the yard and I will spend three, four hours in the yard just playing around and just trying to think about concepts and, and clear ways to communicate. So basically now and I enjoy it, but you know, whatever types of programs or events I have coming up in, in, in the future, I kind of organize my fishing so I can kind of just, you know, get prepared for what I'm going to be talking about. Uh, and, and also just also, I think the most important thing about teaching is reevaluating, you know, your past comments or your former beliefs. You know, a lot of things I've done in the past, I still do, but I have tweaked uh, where I found a better way of doing it. So one of the things I do maybe a little too much of is I just love to tweak. Uh, you know, what you hear me talk about in a program one year might be a little bit different from the next year, but in hopes it, it's called progress. And hopefully sometimes you need to make those changes to kind of take a couple steps forward. So, you know, as I said, it's just basically I, I fish based on uh, what I'll be doing uh, teaching-wise in the coming days or weeks or even years. There's so much stuff that you've accomplished already, you know, in the industry. You've been successful as a competitive angler, um, your life at TCO Fly Shop, and you've started your own business living on the fly. Now you're teaching at Penn State. And, you know, you mentioned earlier in the interview, you know, Joe was your mentor, and I know he had a huge impact on your early development 
What did he teach you about fly fishing? I mean, you know, a couple things. I mean, the one thing he really taught me was, I mean, focusing on the fundamentals. I mean, the one thing, like, we live, you know, I guess you could say, like, our culture today, we, we, we think we can time hack everything. Like, you know, we can basically just, you know, get this step done and then quickly jump to this next step. And, you know, one of Joe's comments or one of his quotes that he always uses was from a guy named Bill Cole, who was a, uh, a national champion for Penn State. And this was back, way back in the day. But eventually, you know, he was a coach at Penn State and Joe was his assistant at Penn State. Uh, but Bill Cole would always say that, you know, your most advanced movements done to perfection are your, your most basic movements done to perfection are your most advanced movements. So it, it's just it's it's refining the the, 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 the the major details or those fine little details. And one of the things that Joe would do is when I, you know, the few times I spent with him casting and fishing, you know, he had me working on that. You know, he likes that short little casting stroke, but he, you know, you, you make a cast 15, 20 feet. You're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an all-star now. Now I'm going to start ripping out more fly line. But he's like, no, you, you did not, you, you cast, you're casting 15 feet, but you're working too hard. You're turning your shoulders. We can improve that. And he would just like make sure, I mean, he would just break you down uh, until you perfected the 15 foot cast. Then we do the 20 foot cast and then maybe we can get in a double haul. But this is done over like weeks, not just trying to get this all done in one day, but it was a progression. Uh, just focusing on those core things and it wouldn't be long lessons. I wasn't in the grass or in the, in the, in the stream with him for hours. It was just short, very focused amounts of time. And then you take your break and then we, we come back next week and repeat. And if I, if I hit that repeat mark and I'm, I'm getting better, then we can proceed. But if not, we keep working on that until I'm good enough to move to the next step. So he told me to be patient and, and get things down concrete before moving to more complex movements. And, and the other thing about Joe is, I mean, I love Joe. It, it, the thing I love about Joe is a lot of people – I guess you could say in the industry and some, po you can, you can write, you can talk about things, but when it comes to actually doing things on the stream in front of law, live audiences and groups, you can see like demonstrations, like even myself, like when I'm doing like a casting demonstration, you know, I, I want to stay in the wide open areas. I, I want to make a cast. I don't want to look like a buffoon, but the thing I, I cherish about Joe is when, when I watch Joe do programs or demonstrations, he, he won't look for that easy, you know, access point to do the demonstration he will find the damnedest like the most difficult place in the entire section and he's going to take his group there and he's going to demonstrate and have a catch and catch and cast in those situations so he is not afraid to go into the most challenging situations even when other eyes are on him so he taught me to you know he basically taught me you need to have confidence when you go into that and early on when i wanted to go to those wide open spots i just realized I wasn't good enough to do it. I really wasn't. I could do it on my own maybe once in a while, but eventually he just forced me to kind of get more, you know, challenge myself more and more on the water. And then when I developed the confidence, then I would be ready to demonstrate in more harsher conditions. So those are two of the things that uh, I have taken from, I mean, those are just two of the many wonderful things, but definitely the two that stick in my mind the most. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, that's such an incredibly open ended question. Um, because you've, you know, you spent so much time with him. And so, you know, that's your experience as a student. Student, how did, uh, you know, as you had time to reflect, how, what did you learn about mentoring from Joe? You know, 
the thing I learned about mentoring from Joe was this, is that, you know, you, you don't have to spend, you know, hours and hours and days and days together. You know, um, a, a lot of times, as I spoke about Joe in the past, is you know, we, we spent a lot of time. He took a lot of time out of his busy schedule because, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty busy now with, you know, my, my gig and so forth. And when I got to know him, you know, he was still in his like, mid-60s, and he was kind of still at that peak where, you know, he's still, you know, in peak physical conditions. But when he talks about engagement, speaking engagements, I mean, that was when he was, like, on the run nonstop. Not that he is now, but he was in full gear. But even at his peak, when he was the busiest in his life, he still, he took a lot of time out uh, to help me out. But what he did mostly was just give me encouragement. I mean, and that's, I mean, encouragement is a, is a powerful tool. You know, when there is someone that you look up to in life, uh, and when they give you words of encouragement saying, you know, you can do this. I mean, he was definitely harsh on me. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't all, you know, unicorns and rainbows. I mean, Joe was a, an old wrestler and a boxer for Penn State, so he could be downright, you know, just he could be strict with you from time to time, to say the, to say the least. But he gave me encouragement and just those words like, okay, George, you know, this this sucked. You know, this really did. I mean, you would watch some of my programs and demonstrations. You know, that kind of sucked. That wasn't very good. But here's what we can do to improve. But he kind of kept, and that was his way of saying it, I care. I want to help you out. And just having those words of encouragement really, uh, really set the path and really forced me to dig deeper and harder, even when things weren't always looking great, uh, you know, from a career standpoint. And the other thing I learned about Joe is, you know, Joe is, one of the things that impressed me the most about Joe was just recently with his movie that came out about his life, living, you know, uh, live the stream, you know, the movie has been, you know, with, they would do like these showings at like state college theater and so forth. And the first couple were, were sold out and all of a sudden they're like, well, we're going to bring the show back to state college. And I'm thinking, well, geez, you know, you know, does that make sense? Because I mean, is it, are that many people going to come back? And sure enough, like they've had, they had sold out shows four and five times. And, and when you, hang out at the shows and you see the people that were there, all the people that were there, most of the people Joe had had some influence with it, you know, and I'm just, you know, whether it was old wrestling um, students that wrestled for him or, you know, athletes or people that he knew at Penn state, but Joe was always, you know, would always help people out. You know, when, when he thought that there was a need, he would help them out. And he had such an effect on so many people. And, and I had no idea how, like, all these stories about what Joe would do. I mean, there were, there were wrestlers of his that were almost, you know, basically were going to, like, leave home. Like, just leave school, drop out of school, and, and just move away from home. And he had the kids live with him. I mean, like, and this is when he had his teenage daughters, and he wasn't, you know, busy. But he had these kids, and he took them under his wing for a couple months until they got situated. But those are just, like, one of many stories. And it, just, it was just amazing to see during these movies and talking to these people how many lives that this guy has affected. And it just, you know, it's just like one of my favorite quotes that John Wooden would use from Mother Teresa. And I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to hack it. But basically a life um, that's not lived to serve others is basically kind of a useless life. And, and what Joe was just showing me, it just, you know, all the people that he has touched and, and how that has affected their lives and how they've been able to live successful and happy lives. I mean, that is like, that's the end game. You know, fly fishing is just part of it. But if I can help someone get better at fly fishing, that hopefully will promote themselves in business and get better at life and so forth. That's great. And I know that's a very long-winded answer, but 
basically it's just helping other people to get better, uh, you know, in their own lives or, you know, basically like, like a life coach. And, and, uh, you know, that, that is something within you know, a couple of years, just working with the students I've been working with, um, and just seeing and having kids come back to me, um, and even, uh, just even customers come back and say, you know, that last one that we did a couple of years ago, you know, that has really helped out. And now I'm, you know, I'm living in Colorado or Montana, I've got this job, but I still go back to fly fishing. Fly fishing is my salvage. So that, uh, for me, that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's more than money. That's better than money. That's, I mean, that's just, that's gold. Yeah. It's amazing, right? Cause it's an incredibly simple concept. It's phenomenally powerful and very hard to do. Right. You know, it's, it's just kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, it is. you know, and so you, you've known Joe for a long time. So, you know, how has your mentoring relationship changed over the years from when I think you were, you were what, a young high school kid when you first met Joe, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it was based, I mean, it was, and I'm still the student. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. He, he will, you know, like we have discussions like we do with the fly fishing shows and, you know, I like the finger on top cast. He uses the thumb on top and we have discussions, but you know, it was, it was truly like a true, like, you know, teacher, you know, teacher or, you know, like a, a Padawan to a, a master. And I, I, we still have that relationship, but it, it's definitely fostered more into a, a friendship, uh, almost like a family uh, relationship where, you know, he still gives me advice, but now when I go in there, I'm not always, you know, looking to, you know, seek knowledge from fly fishing from him, which is always nice, but it's just, we become friends uh, and just kind of, you know, and especially now Joe's being 90 years old, he's become a lot more reflective uh, and, He's more willing to kind of give me life advice, uh, whether it's in fishing or whatnot. So he, he's become from basically a fly fishing instructor to kind of almost like a father figure uh, currently in my life. Yeah, that's really great. And um, can you, are there any other folks that have had that type of an impact on your development as an angler or in, in coaching um, in addition to Joe? Yeah, I mean, definitely Joe is kind of the, like I said, the bulk of, of what I have come, but when it comes to like fishing techniques, I mean, yeah, I've had, there were some like local guys, guys like, uh, oh boy, Dan Shields lo- on the local fly shop, even guys like Dave Rothrock, uh, kind of another local guy. And then, um, uh, I got into competitive fly cast early in my early twenties. So I, I became involved with, uh, the Federation of Fly Fishers. I think now they're IFF, but you know, two of the guys in that group, uh, they were like master cast instructors, but those guys, you know, a guy named Floyd Frankie, who was a, who was an educator, but just in, uh, taught at the Joan Wolf school at fly fishing was, was probably one of the clearest, most concise communicators in fly casting I've ever come across. He was very stuck in his ways on some things, but man, he was just, when he stood up and he talked, he just demanded attention. Uh, and I just, I just loved the way he communicated and talked the principles of fly casting. So Floyd Frankie and another gentleman who was uh, very similar to his ability to communicate was a guy named Phil Gay, who was actually in charge, uh, who was in the Navy. And from what I was told, was actually in charge of an aircraft carrier during the first Persian Gulf. So if you're an admiral or in charge of a, a vessel, you are clearly a good communicator and leader. And he took those skills he did in the Navy and he transferred that over into becoming a, a casting instructor. Uh, and between those two guys, Phil and, and uh, Floyd, those guys were, when it comes to like, not just becoming good casters, but turn 
teaching how to cast or that those two guys taught me the most on how to communicate teaching casting. And other than that, I mean, it's everywhere I come in contact, like my last book I wrote, I mean, I, I basically, instead of doing an introduction, like a thank you, because I said, if I was to write an introduction in like a, a thank you section, I mean, it would entail an entire chapter. I mean, everyone I've come in contact with, and, and one of the best quotes or comments I've ever gotten was people saying, you look like a mutt when you cast, when you fish, because it looks like you got a little bit of Humphreys, you got a little bit of Cray there, you've got, you know, just a bunch of people. And I just taken everywhere I've gone, whether it's in shows or reading and so forth. I mean, I, I just take bits from everyone and I, and I just keep putting it into a system and it's like a Heinz 57 variety, but it works incredibly well for me. And so, yeah. Uh, and people like that. And then even just my clients, I've learned so much just having them make mistakes, learning from the mistakes, but also, I mean, a lot of them have good experiences and they have shown me, I mean, I, I was shown how to tie a better blood knot uh, just a, a few days ago. Uh, and then someone showed me how to tie a, a dropper on my, my nymphing rig a lot easier than what I was doing. it. Uh, so yeah. And, and these were all clients. So everyone who I've come in contact with, uh, from a fishing standpoint has been great. Uh, and I, I've learned much uh, from everyone. Yeah, that's really great. And obviously, you know, you, you over your your early part of your fishing career, you converted that at, into competitive success. But kind of once you hung up your uh, your competitive angling cleats, you went on to coach the U.S. youth team and fly fishing team USA. And I was really curious what the transition was like from perfecting your personal performance to helping other anglers do the same for themselves. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. That's a tough question because basically when you're competing, you know, it, it's a team aspect, but you're also focusing on me, 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 how can I get better? So you're going from helping myself to then actually trying to help other people. Uh, so that was the biggest thing. I mean, we all have egos and we all are, are selfish in our own means. So, you know, when I was competing, like, you know, I was always trying to get people to help me out and me. And now I was trying to get other team or get our guys to work together, but actually to help others. So I would say that was probably the biggest challenge just because, I mean, I transitioned from, I mean, and these guys are a lot of the guys like Lance and Devin, I mean, they were competing the same time I was. And so the other big obstacle there, or the biggest challenge I would say with like the coaching was a lot of times, I mean, one, one day or one week, I'm, I'm a former competitor, I'm a teammate. And then I go from teammate to coaching or, and trying to control or, basically not saying being their boss, but basically kind of running the show, uh, as a leader. So that right there was, uh, was very challenging for me to try to overcome it. I don't think I was very successful in that because I wanted to be a coach. I, I mean, I wanted to be a friend and a teammate and, um, you know, I, I coached for two years, but I don't think I ever went truly from being a good teammate to becoming a great coach. Cause I, I was just, it's different. You know, when you're, a leader, you do things for the better of the team and you're not always trying to make friends. Whereas a teammate, you know, as a friend, you're trying to, you know, impress people and you're trying to, you know, remain friends with them. And when you, when you cloud the two together, it's not always a good formula. And for me, that was definitely the biggest challenge, uh, jumping from teammate to coach with the adults. Yeah, no, I can completely get that. I mean, it's like one day you're playing baseball for the Dodgers and the next thing, next day you're Tommy Lasorda and you have to make it work, right? 
Yeah, correct. And, and, you know, the thing, I guess you could say the best thing I was so proud of, uh, in coaching the youth and the adult team is, you know, there were, I, I guess you can say people in the past that, you know, it, it was like, as someone explained to me, it was like a, the lower of the rings, it was like a ring of power. I mean, it was really cool to be, you know, to have that control as uh, the youth, the coach of the youth and the coach of the adult team, which I was almost doing the same simultaneously for a couple of years. Uh, but my, the thing I'm most proud of is that I realized I was not, I did not have the time because I was trying to compete. I was co- coaching. I was doing uh, working at TCO. I was guiding. I was doing speaking engagements. I was writing my first book. My first child was born. I was trying to do everything. And then I basically was getting nothing done. But the thing I was most proud of is that I realized I was not doing the team any good. And then I eventually handed it over to a guy named Brett Bishop who put, I think, three, two or three, like, hard years into structuring that team, and eventually they became uh, the first team to medal. But uh, for me, I mean, it was, I, I was sorry not to be with that team because I, I spent so many years with those guys, but I was so happy for them, and, and I was glad because uh, I don't think the team would have medaled if I was remaining the coach because I just did not have the time and the energy to put forth to get the guys in our team ready for the world's competition. So, um, in, in all honesty, that was my biggest accomplishment and, and my proudest moment was actually being able to understand that and hand it off to someone who was more capable uh, of the job. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because it makes me think of the Steve Jobs quote about him being proud about all the things that he said no to so that he could focus on the few things that he did do. Um, and it sounds like that was the crossroads that you were at when you were going through that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I, I love quotes. I guess in my older age, I'm 40, going on 41 here pretty soon, but it's just, I, I, I begin like looking at now like phrases and, you know, poems and so forth. But, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from John Wooden who coached UCLA basketball, but he always said, don't, don't mistake activity for achievement. <laughs> so a lot of times I, I was busy for those couple of years, but I wasn't getting the damn thing done. Uh, so it, it was, like you're saying, you just got to pick your lanes, uh, find one or two things that you really want to focus on. And that's what Steve Jobs did. I mean, focus, he had such a micro focus instead of trying to do a bunch of products, he would focus on, you know, the MacBook or the iPod, but he just had laser focus. And because he had that focus, he was able to achieve more. And I definitely found that once I started saying no, you're exactly right to all these other things and just focusing on the family and maybe writing for that, I think I became a little more more productive uh, on those lines. Yeah, one question I want to ask you before we move away from the the team coaching stuff is: what were the differences between coaching the youth team and coaching the adult team? So it's yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely trade offs. I mean, with the kids in the in the youth, I mean, up front, I, I actually enjoy the kids more. Uh, it just you know, but the kids are a lot more fun to work with. But then you're dealing with the little league parents. Uh, that's that's and little league, little league syndrome goes in all activities, not just fly fishing. But with the kids, what, one of the things, that I guess, and I was thinking about this, the thing that I really enjoyed about the kids with the difference is maybe my short attention span. But, you know, when you're working with kids, they have a foundation, but they are they have not really perfected their craft. So, like, when you would work with a kid on, like, a couple weekend clinics or whatever, the kids, because those kids, uh, their, their knowledge base was less and their, you know, their capabilities were also a little bit less you would see like these massive leaps of improvement within like a a three four day period 
which was like, it's, it's monumental. Like what they were doing a couple of days ago. And then you just focus on a couple of key co- concepts or principles during the practice. And then you know, maybe they went from casting 15 feet to 35 feet, or maybe now they're, they're t- being able to tuck the cast uh, and so forth. But there was like these huge differences. And then you go to like working with the adult guys who, I mean, who are just phenomenal anglers, but like, you know, that, that, you know, getting to that 95, that 96% tile, you know, getting that 80%, you know, capability is pretty, you can do that pretty fast, but going from that 80% from like being a, a great angler to like a phenomenal angler, the, the time it takes to make, to get from that is just, it takes so long. And the, and the sequences just are so much shorter. It just takes so much longer to see those small improvements. So that was it. It was just seeing how quickly things, how much of an improvement a kid can make versus how long it would take someone who had great skill sets, but it would just take them so much longer to actually notice those subtle differences uh, in, in those lines of improvement, if that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, you're talking, you kind of start to transition out of coaching, uh, focus a little bit more uh, on the family and writing. And, you know, for folks that know your career, you spent quite a few years managing the TCO Fly Shop and State College and guiding. But I know, what was it, three or four years ago, you launched Living on the Fly. And, you know, that that business has a very uh, education-oriented focus. I think even on your website, you call it guiding instruction, and you do a lot of workshops and clinics. And I was really curious to understand the genesis of Living on the Fly. Yeah, it was just my my approach to basically just transitioning from, you know, the fly shop, and I enjoyed my time there, but just focusing on what I enjoy doing, and that's just guiding or, and, and educating. And, you know, guiding education, it's it's all semantics, and it's how you look at it. But when I, when I work with people, I'm interested in looking at working with people who are, you know, are, get, are driven to get become better. So everything I do with my business, whether it's writing, um, you know, now we're going to be doing a few videos coming out here uh, with a guy named Jay Nichols, uh, my seminars, anything. It, it's just, it's just basically teaching skills. Uh, and basically my goal when I work with people is hopefully when you're done with me or a couple lessons, hopefully I won't have to see you for a long period of time, uh, you know, because, you know, you, you've got some skill sets and now you can go off and you kind of explore uh, and, and learn on your own and actually get a little bit better or take lessons from other people. But the whole idea with what I'm doing is just teaching people to understand skill sets uh, they need to get on the water. And as a result, teach them how to think, not just telling them what to do, but teach them how to think, how to make adjustments with the casting, uh, looking at water conditions and so forth, but becoming a thinker, teaching thinking skills and developing situational awareness. Uh, that's kind of like my impetus. That's, that's what I really try to focus on when I teach. Um, so that's kind of my, my goal, uh, when I, with my business is just, you know, getting people to appreciate and to become better thinkers in the, in their sport. And do you find that that gets reflected back to you so that you, you attract a specific type of client or find specific people coming to your seminars? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you definitely get some broad range folks, but usually the people that come to me, at least, um, in, in, and I will, I only do, you know, I do less than a hundred days a year. I mean, this year I'm, and I'm going to be doing a lot less now that my engagement or my responsibilities with Penn State, it looks like they're going to be getting bigger and bigger here in the next couple of years. But, you know, it's, 
you know, if you want to catch big fish or if you just don't want someone to kind of show you around, you know, our area, there's a lot of people that can do that and probably people that can do a lot better than I can. And, and also for me, that would be just insanely boring. I, I just, I, I, I could not just kind of tell you, okay, cast here, cast here, and basically go on a boat ride or that's not what I enjoy doing. What I enjoy doing are, are finding people that want to be, want to learn, want to be taught. So definitely the people who come to me definitely have um, are more focused. And in many ways, they're a lot more demanding, in all honesty. I think a lot of what I'm doing is sometimes a lot more stressful because when I'm working with people, I mean, I am on. When, I, when we do eight-hour days, I am on eight hours. I'm not taking a break and looking around. I mean, when people, they want critique. Uh, they want, you know, to be explained what's going on. And when you, are, when you are doing lessons for like four to eight hours, I mean, you have got to be focused that entire time and constantly thinking in your brain, okay, he's not doing this and then just kind of troubleshooting things. But for me, that is definitely more challenging, uh, doing lessons than it is guiding. No, it makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, it sounds like you're, you know, you're at peace with your approach, but do you find that it sometimes causes issues with you for you in the broader angling community? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely, uh, the thing is, like when I like at, when I teach at Penn State, you know, I, I I keep it very very simple. Uh, and you know, I've done a couple like beginner nymphing classes, and when I do that, I'm going to keep it very very simple. But just like when I write, I mean, what I'm talking about is I, I, I'm performance driven. I mean, I just love seeking performance. And when I watch people cast, I'm not critical of you know if I'm seeing them turn their shoulders, I'm not thinking, well, this guy sucks or this lady sucks. What I want is like I can I can make them so much more effective and more efficient. I can get them to make a cast 10 feet longer, but use half the energy. So I look at the macro, the, the micro, I just, I love just fine tuning things and just keep combing it, you know, with a fine comb tooth, just keep combing it back until they've almost perfected the craft. And a lot of people who come in to fly fishing, uh, sometimes with the seminars or take my classes, you know, I advertise it. Like, this is more of an intermediate to advance. We're going to get kind of down to the nitty-gritty. And but there's always a few folks. Some of them like it, but some of them are, are complete beginners. And then, you know, they just they get very frustrated. Or people that buy my books. I mean, I called it dynamic nymphing uh, for a reason. It wasn't the beginner's guide to nymphing. This was its dynamic nymphing. So I want to, like, really dive into the nitty-gritty about how you think about how you change your approaches uh, based on conditions and situations. So you get, I get a, you know, I get a lot of kickback. I mean, a lot of kickback with sometimes, you know, nasty emails and so forth where people are just, you know, frustrated because, you know, they're beginning fly fishers and they pick up my book and they can't understand it and they shouldn't and, and they should be frustrated. But, uh, you know, you, you also have to understand that when you're, when you take a class with me, I really try to do my best to explain that, hey, this, this is, you know, this is what we're going to be doing. This is what, and if you're, if you don't feel comfortable, then I would highly recommend not taking this class. And just as I've talked about, I've talked countless people out of buying my books and stuff because they say oh, I'm, I'm beginning, I'm a beginner in nymph fishing, you know, and they, they bring them my book to, to sign it. And I, I will be upfront with them most of the time and say, this is not the book to get started. If you read this book, you will be pulling your hair out at the end of this book. You need to kind of start with this. And then eventually once you're there, then you can get, you know, read this book later on. But yeah, you definitely, you definitely get a lot of blowback. And, you know, 
it depends on how you look at it. I think you know, one of the quotes, another quote like I heard is, you know, good good art creates division. You know, so like you know whether you you know depending on music or actual art itself, you'll find that some people love a particular style of art and the other half absolutely hate it. And it seems like with me, with my style to coach, with keep you know, coaching and then also instruction. I have a lot of people who like the way I do it. And then I have a pile of people that hate the way I teach it. And they're very, uh, very vocal about it. So, but that's, you know, that's, but I'm perfectly happy with it because I, I think in some ways I, I do help the people that are in that intermediate to advanced group. And I, and I do my best to kind of take them to that next level. Uh, and I think when you need to get down to that next, you do sometimes need to get down to the nitty gritty. So I'm perfectly, perfectly, you know, content uh, with that. I, I can go to sleep pretty good without any, substitutes so yeah <laughs> well but the other thing too is people have to to remember is just because that's your approach it doesn't mean that you aren't approachable right it, you no. know? oh absolutely yeah absolutely i i think yeah, I, I think i'm i think I'm, in the industry i think i'm one of the more laid-back guys in the industry i really am i mean i you know i, I remember the funny thing about the industry is i have a i have a memory like an elephant i can remember a lot of things and i remember going to some of the fly fishing shows and I'm not going to name names, but some of the people who I like, I read their books and I was excited. And then I, I go up and I meet them and they're just like, you know, go, go piss off kid. I, I don't have time for you. Um, but you know, every time someone has questions for me, I, you know, I really, I remember that because I really remember how heartbroken I was when people who I admired just kind of kicked me to the curb. So I really, uh, anyone that has questions, I mean, I get questions emails, texts, Instagram, I really, I think there's maybe only been one or two times where I've actually had even, I don't respond. And that's just because maybe I forgot, but I try to respond back to everything. Even the, the super negative comments, I will just, you know, thank people for the, you know, you know, suggestions, uh, or whatnot. But I, uh, I appreciate people. I mean, it's, it's how I make a living. Um, uh, so any time that someone is willing to spend, you know, 15, 20 bucks, uh, to buy a book of mine or attend one of my lectures or even come up to me at one of the shows and say hello. I mean, that's time is, time is a, is a priceless commodity. And if, and I feel honored that someone would want to come up and spend, you know, five, 10 minutes and talk to me. So I, I cherish that and I am thankful for all that. And I try to do my best to, you know, pay those people back uh, with my time and attention during uh, that moment that we have together. Absolutely. And, you know, as we take a deeper dive into your instructional style, you know, one question I wanted to ask you is, you know, do you have a a George Daniel system or approach and you try to teach people that system or do you sort of have a box of Legos of different ways of teaching people and you kind of sort through the Lego box for each angler? Yeah, so definitely that's more of a Lego box for the most part, uh, because, you know, uh, I, I don't, I, I think one of the things I, I really stay away from is when I hear people say, you know, this is the way, this is how you do it. This is the only way you do it. I think that's, that's horrible instruction, even though they may be giving you good information. Basically they're telling you that once you can do this, basically you need to stop learning. You, you've learned everything. So what I try to do is I try to, you know, the thing, I, you know, a lot of times people will come, you know, they want to learn the way maybe I did for whatever it is, I will teach them a couple little casting approaches the way I like to cast and, and just kind of my general simple approach. But what I do then is, I mean, I, I basically 
I, I, and this is why I only do so many days a year because it's just, it's mentally taxing on me, but I mean, I, it's almost like an interview. I mean, throughout the day and even before our trip, I mean, I find out where they fish. And a lot of times I, I know those waters that they fish. So I'm always thinking about, you know, not just teaching them, but because when, when you come up, it's like when you come up and you fish with me on Spring Creek or the Fishing Creek, it's going to be a little bit different than the waters you fish on the South or on the, the Davidson. But I, I, I remember when you said, you know, I fish on the Davidson, these rivers. So like when you and I did our lesson together, lessons, I would always kind of like talk about like, okay, this is how I do it here. But if you're fishing like water section, like on the Davidson river, I think maybe this approach would be a little more applicable to those waters. So I just try to teach people, you know, some foundations and some of the things that I do, but I also really strive for them to kind of think and suit things based on where they fish more frequently, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I guess kind of the next uh, iteration on that question is, do you find that, you, you know, you can kind of group the anglers you work with into kind of broad categories and kind of, you know, what your teaching coaching approach looks like for each of those groups? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple, I mean, there are people who, I mean, just want to get started and just want to catch some fish. Uh, those, and those are just, you know, they, they just want to know just enough. Uh, and, and that's kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. So just kind of just get, get the job done. Uh, you can, I guess you could say those types of groups. Uh, and when I have that, I, I keep it very simple, clear cut, a couple little tips here and there, uh, but I don't go too far. But then there are others who are just hardcore and, and they are just, they want to get down to the nitty gritty. And that's where you definitely have to kind of open up your approach a little bit more uh, and understand that, you know, they have different casting, you know, physical abilities, waters that they type uh, fish. So I will be a lot more flexible with that group. Uh, so, yes. No, it make, makes a lot of sense because I know, for example, I know you have a lot of comp guys that come and fish with you, right? Because I, when I when I watch your social media feed, it seems like you got a fair number of guys that are really trying to to sharpen the edge on their competitive game, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and you're and that that's a great point. I didn't think about that. Like when when it comes to like that, like a lot of times you're teaching skills, uh, and and those skills are very important. Uh, but when like when you work with like competitive anglers, because I I mean I do have a even though I've been out of the comp game now for maybe six or seven years from a coaching standpoint, I still, I think I have a, a pretty good handle on, you know, on what works, uh, the core, you know, the core principles of what works and what doesn't work. But a lot of what I'm doing with coach coaching or working with comp anglers is two things. One is I'm, I'm teaching efficiency, like pure efficiency. So like where sometimes where people might take a couple false casts to get lined up and develop timing that's perfectly fine. But when you're competing, you know, you can have great anglers, but the great anglers who have to fly in the water 10% of the time with the same presentation are going to catch more fish. So a lot of that is also just teaching efficiency. And then the other thing is it's a mindset. Like competitive fly fishing, there are so many phenomenal anglers out in the country, but a lot of them would be horrible, horrible cob anglers because they don't have the mindset you need because with comp angler you might fish for three hours but you're fishing a short beat of water and you have to really micromanage and when things go wrong and so forth but so a lot of it is just working you know putting these guys through kind of like stressful situations for like three or four hours throwing throwing kind of oddball scenarios but like worst case scenarios at them 
and, and teaching them how to make adjustments and basically get out of their own, get out of their minds and, and focus on the techniques rather than having obstacles and some of these short, you know, falls, you know, affecting their performance. You know, and, you know, I'll go back to like Lance, uh, you know, Lance and Devin, but, you know, I, the thing I like, I appreciate about Lance is like Lance Egan is like, he is just, when it comes to like a mindset, he is like one of the toughest minds I've ever come across. You know, there were maybe only a few times in like the seven or eight years when I fished with him and then also coached with him on the team where I would maybe see that he was rattled or, you know, make a mistake. Uh, but, you know, he didn't get frustrated. He, he didn't panic. He didn't move too fast. It was pretty much just like a monotone. It was boring as hell to watch for some people sometimes because he just, he wasn't jumping up and down the trucks like he lost some of these guys. You think they were making activity, uh, but again, not mistaken activity for a team, but they were jumping up and down the rocks, swimming across the water. It was looking impressive as hell for the spectators, but Lance was down there basically hardly moving, not panicking, just making adjustments based on the waters, and he was catching a lot more fish, uh, but it just wasn't looking as sexy. Uh, so just trying to teach that, uh, trying to teach the mentality and the efficiency is kind of the, the big difference between traditional comp anglers and a lot of the, the, the average day recreational angler that I, I you know, now have found myself into. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, what is it that you think the coach brings to that player-coach relationship that really helps drive performance? Well, when it comes to, like, the coach and stuff, I mean, with the adults, it, it was different. I mean, those guys were, you know, they were, they were just as good, if not better, anglers than I was. Uh, and in many ways, like with Lance, I mean, he was definitely an all-around better angler than I was. You know, I was pretty good in rivers, but I knew my lakes, but uh, for... Long story short, those guys were great anglers. Uh, so a lot of the, the problems that they had in the past was, you know, basically like logistics or if there were problems with the buses or just getting to the venues. Like basically I was the buffer. If there were any issues or any problems whatsoever, like typical things that would get in the way of the competitor's mindset, my job was to go in there and basically just calm the situation and just let the guys focus on their task. Because uh, before with our team, there was, there was a lot of drama with a lot of situations. And one of my things, I think the one thing I think I did really well uh, during my short tenure there as coach for the two seasons was actually just trying to eliminate the noise and the distractions and just letting the guys do what they wanted to do. And then the other thing was just preparation. I mean, just getting the guys familiar and comfortable with the waters. Because a lot of times when we were competing, a lot of the insight, a lot of the information that we got was, was quite awful. Uh, we would expect one thing and then, you know, try and do some research and make some contacts and then find out when we get there that it's nothing like what we were expecting. So just trying to actually get some good information a little bit, plan and, plan and prepare the guys to, to understand what they're going to be dealing with. And then once they got there, having that comfort, knowing that, okay, this is what we talked about, this is what we prepared for, and this is what we're dealing with, it just kind of eased them, uh, relaxed them a little bit, and again, just allowed them to do their job. So teaching skills, uh, not a whole lot. You know, we would do some things like, I think one of the things I, I did, one of the first guys to do on the team was, I videoed the guys, one of the first couple practices, we would do like a round table discussion. I would like film the guys for 10 minutes, fishing different sections of water uh, in different environments. And then we would just watch collectively as a group and try to be, 
upfront without being, you know, obnoxious about, but just saying, okay, well, you know, you know, like, you know, Lauren, we saw you do that. Or like Anthony, we saw you, why, why are you doing this? Uh, and not that, you know, it wasn't like we were questioning what they're doing, but we just wanted to, we wanted to understand. Sometimes we were able to help them improve what they were doing because they were doing things that they didn't realize. And then sometimes they were explaining things that we didn't realize and they were teaching the rest of the group. So it opened up communication. And I think collectively for years, we were just a bunch of individual guys. And what I tried to do, and I know what Brett has done a remarkable job of now with on the team is actually getting the guys to actually work together and helping each other improve as anglers uh, rather than taking on each other as competitors, but now like collectively working together. And it's, you know, there's some, you know, it's, it's of all the parts. And as a result, the U S team, the adult team and the youth team has done remarkably well, uh, you know, in the recent years. And I think it's just changing the way that those guys fish and the leadership uh, that they've been under. Yeah. And, and interesting enough, right. Cause if we move to the non-competitive anglers, you know, I don't think any of us get to fish as much as we want to. Um, and I know you and I've had this conversation before, um, you know, if you have a limited number of days to fish, you know, you know, obviously, you know, there's no substitute for putting in time on the water, but what can you do to kind of continually improve as an angler? So, yeah, I mean, that's a great question because it's like, it limited time, but, you know, again, another little quote, I mean, one of, uh, the, the, another like podcast I listened to, it's, uh, the Tim Ferriss podcast, not a fly fishing, I'm not going to put any advertiser, you know, good pattern, uh, fly fishing podcast out there, but, uh, Tim Ferriss has got a great pod. He just, he, like he interviews like world-class performers. And, and one of the, the quotes I heard and one of the things you talked about is people underestimate what they can do. Basically they overestimate what they can do in a day, but underestimate what they can do in an entire year. And, and what, what that means is it's like that fable of the, I'm not sure what it, if it was a goat or whatever, but basically there's a goat up, you know, in, in a farm. Uh, and then basically it's got water on one side and food on the other. And it, it, it gets so stressed out. It looks at the food, looks at the water, looks at the food and, it doesn't know which one to, to choose. And as a result, it dies of both starvation and hunger uh, and, and dehydration. And the point of that is, is that when you're fly fishing, if you want to improve, don't think you can do it all. You can do it all, but it's going to take time. So, you know, like what I do is like, I think sometimes like my writing is more of like a, a, a curious scratch. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to scratch my own curiosity. So, when I wanted to work on like my first Newton book, I basically dedicated like three and a half years of my life to understanding nymph fishing. Uh, and every time I went out, I would work on like one or two specific things and kind of build up. And then once I felt like I was comfortable with that, like in a couple of years, I, I wrote a book on streamer fishing. And, you know, I'd done some streamer fishing before that. But when I was writing that book for those two and a half, three years, I mean, my entire life, basically, probably 80% of it was working with streamers. So what I'm saying is this, is that if you have time that's limited on the water, you know, if it, if you're trying to actually improve, try not to jump from, you know, one technique to the other, unless you feel comfortable. Instead, just focus on one aspect. Uh, and, and fly fishing is not an overly complicated process. It really isn't. But I think the problem I see people doing is that, you know, they, they want to fish nymphs one, you know, for a couple hours. And, okay, well, we think, we, you know, I can throw a bobber and mend it kind of okay. So now we want to drive flies. And when they do everything, they don't really achieve anything when it comes to the instructional and learning. So pick a lane, focus on one thing, and just 
every time you go on the water, if you're trying to improve, have a specific goal, have a purpose, and, and just focus on that uh, during your time, and you will find yourself, you know, you may not get a lot of things done in that one day, but it's amazing collectively when you develop those good foundations and, and structure in your fly fishing game, it's amazing how that cumulatively adds up over the course of several years. And I think you get a lot more productive when you, you pick a lane, work with it, and then jump to the next one later on. No, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as we've been talking, one thing I'm kind of curious about, I mean, you've been teaching for quite a few years. How did you feel like your approach to teaching has changed? Well, you can definitely tell I'm long-winded about this, but in, in short, when I'm, when I'm teaching now, I really try to focus on one or two key points. And, you know, there was a lot of blowback. I mean, there, I don't Google myself anymore these days because there's all kinds of, you know, you don't want to read too much about yourself. But, you know, I remember earlier on, uh, I had some friends that were watching and then uh, a seminar of mine. And there were, I actually, and there were a couple of hecklers. There's always, you know, there's always a heck, heckler or two. But one of the hecklers was saying, this guy, this, this guy's a speed talker. He's going way too fast. And, at first, I was a little upset and so forth, but when I thought about it, he was exactly right because early on in my in my life, I, I wanted to give people the biggest bang for their buck. Like when it came to like when it came to like a, a seminar or like a show, so I would try to pack like it, it was like the micro machine guy, the commercial, just like boop 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 boop, and I would just try to just pile this information and give these people so much information that they felt like yeah, I got something from this program. But when you do that, it's just information overload. Our, the bandwidth between our ears is only so much that we can only remember so many things. So instead of really trying to pound a pile of information in the program, I would say probably probably within the last three to four years, I have really, with every one of my programs, whether it's a nymphing, dry fly, or streamer, I try to focus on maybe maybe three to five core ideas and then just try to comb some of those things out and also add some humor and entertainment and, and some you know and some fun pictures. But really try to reduce the overload, try to focus on a couple of key points and just hope and just hope that maybe one or two of those points of the five or six is going to stick with them uh, after they leave. Yeah. It's interesting you say that. Cause I think when I think about teachers that I've, you know, learned the most from, they're very reductive like that, right? Where they don't give you war and peace. They basically give you two or three things that are, you know, the game changers, right? They're the 20% that make you 80% better. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, before, before I let you go tonight, you know, anybody that follows you on social media knows that everybody in the Daniel family fishes and, um, in this day and age, there's so much competition for family attention and technology. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out there would really like to know your secret for raising kids that love the outdoors and love to fish. Yeah. I mean, Probably this year, this was like the first year, our daughter, uh, she, she, she she still enjoys the fish, but she didn't want to enjoy, fish it as much. Uh, maybe we uh, did a little bit too much, a little burnout, but uh, she loves the outdoors. Uh, and, and she's just going through some, you know, she's 10 now and she's got friends that are in other activities. But for the most part, uh, you know, she still likes to fish. But in general, my wife and I, it's work. I mean, it's an investment. The way we look at it, it's an investment because the one thing like with fishing, and one is you got to make it enjoyable, and that's what my wife does remarkably well. 
when I was starting to teach my kids really early on, I was kind of more of a taskmaster, like, you know, let's get this, this, and this done. And, you know, we would fish hard. It's like, you know, half hour, 45 minutes. But what my wife kind of taught me was, you know, the kids need to have fun. So very short increments, maybe five, 10 minutes, catch some fish. But the other thing is don't take them in environments. I mean, I know the, I'm a pretty well-seasoned angler around here. I know when there are times where it's going to be incredibly challenging versus it's going to be relatively easy. And getting, getting someone started into fishing, you don't want to take them out into challenging situations and develop frustration. So I would selectively just, you know, even if it was like the loss of a couple of days of guiding, I would just pick times uh, in, in times of the year where I felt the kids had the best opportunity to catch fish and I would just work with them on those days. And the other thing about my wife is, I mean, we would bring squirt guns uh, and we would do, you know, instead of just fishing, it was, it was an outdoor experience. So I was kind of more of the fly fishing instruction and she was more of the fun bringing snacks. And, you know, my old man was like, my old man was pretty like militaristic on me. I mean, he was just like, no, we're, we're fishing all day and every day. And somehow I, I still love to do it. But uh, one of the things I found with my kids is that they, they love being out there with us, but it's also, it's the whole experience. We get to catch fish. We learn a little bit, but having the squirt guns, having the snacks, uh, taking some pictures, uh, throwing rocks in the water. I mean, it's just, it's that whole package. And I think that was the number one thing uh, I've, I've really gotten better at. And like I said, my daughter loves to fish, but she loves to be outside. I mean, so now she'll catch the fish and, and she's perfectly happy with it, but she loves bringing a notepad now. And what she wants, she wants to do sketches. She loves sketching like outdoors and she wants to get into photography. But, you know, our kids prefer to be outside, but I think it is just, you know, putting them into an environment where we try to make it as much fun as possible. And then when things, you know, when things, you know, when they get older and when things change, uh, sometimes some of the things that we did, maybe we did too much hiking, maybe we did, but we're always adjusting now, especially as they get into their teenage years. But so far, uh, they love to be outside. And the other point I want to make, and I've talked about before with other folks, is just if you're going to teach your kids or grandkids to fish, you're going to be teaching them. You're not, I think the worst mistake most people will make is that they want to teach and fish simultaneously. You, you can't, that's impossible because when you're teaching someone, you need to have a hundred percent focus. Uh, and you know, and I, and I see the problem is because, you know, a lot of my clients, a lot of people I work with, I mean, they have stressful jobs. They're working nonstop and they only have a couple of days or maybe a couple of days a month, maybe a couple of days a year to fish. And then, you know, they tell me, well, you know, I'm going out. I'm going to try to take my son out. I was like, that's the worst thing because they want to fish at the same time. So either hiring a guide or if you want to, honestly, I mean, for like the first six months of each of my kids, I didn't fish at all. I mean, I just, I just wanted to get them comfortable and develop their skill sets. And then now, I mean, they're, they're nine, nine and 10, uh, going on 11, but they can fish basically 100% on their own, basically all the time. So it was it was an investment. It definitely was a time suck early on. Uh, I didn't get to do as much fishing early in my life uh, when the kids were around, but that investment now has paid off, and they enjoy the outdoors and they're self-sustaining anglers. Yeah, I, I got to tell you that's really great advice because I learned that one the hard way, uh, and used to take my my boys fishing, and you know you would kind of like you had fun, but you never were quite fulfilled because you didn't get to fish as much as you wanted to. Um, and so, you know, I have to, I I literally took my youngest son fishing on veterans day and I made that mental note that, um, you know, 
I may not wet a line today. And I literally strung my rod up and didn't put a fly in the water the entire day, but we had a great time. So that's really great advice for folks. Um, and, and one thing too, George is, you know, um, I'm really interested cause you know, I was fascinated when I was fishing with my son on veterans day, just to see the world through his eyes. Um, and I was curious about how your kids have impacted your approach to angling and teaching. Well, with angling is just, you know, it's, it's made me like re-love, uh, fly fishing because it's no matter how fly fishing, I mean, I still love the fish. I really do. But you know, I've caught a few fish over the years. I've seen a few fish being caught in front of me from a guiding standpoint. And no, no matter how cool of an experience it is, if it's something you've seen thousands and thousands of times, it's an amazing process. It's an amazing experience. But sometimes it can get diluted a little bit when you've seen it happen thousands and thousands of times. Uh, but for me, you know, what I love about fishing is, I'm a trout bum by, by nature, but what I got so excited about is like we would go to some of the farm ponds and our kids were catching crappie or even like my, my little guy, Logan, would go on some of our local waters in the spring when the, when the suckers were spawning and he was catching 17, 18 inch uh, suckers uh, on sucker on, on sucker spot. And that kid, like I've got pictures of him. He is far more excited about that 18 inch sucker than he was about that 12 inch beautiful wild brown trout. Uh, and it's just that, that, just that love affair. Uh, and it's basically like all fish lives matter. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it just, it, it just, it just basically taught me that, you know, you know, yeah, trout are great, but it's just, you know, it's just catching fish in this day and age with the environmental things that we're having to deal with and so forth. Anyone that can go out and catch a fish, uh, it, it is just something to be cherished. So, I, I have really developed a, a deep appreciation, not for trout, but now also for countless other fish, uh, like even like panfish uh, and sunfish, which we have a farm pond now that with a new house that we kind of rebuilt and, and refinished. Uh, I would say panfish is probably one of my favorite things to do. It's one of the most you know, therapeutic things you can do, uh, catching uh, blue, you know, uh, bluegills on a popper. Uh, and it's something I would have never done like probably five, six years ago. I, I probably would have just stuck my nose up, but now, it's probably one of my favorite things to do, uh, especially with my kids. So definitely uh, appreciating other other species is one of the things that they've taught me over the last couple of years. Very neat. And, you know, as we wind down this evening, you know, you've achieved so much already in the sport. I'm curious, you know, what you hope to accomplish over the remainder of your angling career. You know, I'm, uh, I, I think – the, the one good thing, one of my good qualities is probably my lack of confidence and lack of confidence in my abilities. So I really don't think I've done much so far. I don't think I really know much. Uh, cause in, in the thing I love about traveling, it, it basically you surround yourself with so many people and it really makes you understand and realize how little, you know. Uh, so for me, I mean, I mean, honestly, like I wrote two nipping books within like a seven, eight year span. I mean, I constantly am journaling and I'm always tinkering. I'm thinking about new things. I could today, I could write a smaller nymphing book, but I could basically talk about what has happened within the last two years of my nymphing, uh, even from the last nymphing book. So I'm always looking at getting better. Uh, so I'm always fine tuning, uh, my approach, but in short, I'm, I'm working on another, I'm working on a book. It's, it's a dry fly book. 
so probably the next year and a half, uh, as of this year, I spent a lot of my time just working on dry flies, uh, just going places, fishing with different people, but also just experimenting. Uh, I got some DVDs. I have a DVD coming out with uh, Jay Nichols, like a little tiny DVD with some instructions on how to fish them nymph-wise. Simple little video. And then probably next year, we're going to start filming for some more kind of a, a higher level nymphing class, uh, you know, both with like suspension tools and then also traditional, you know, European nymphing slash tight line tactics. So I got that working for me. And the other thing too is, I mean, I, this musky game, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't ever plan on guiding or writing for it, but for me, it's just, it's just learning about a new species and targeting. I mean, like right now, like if you ask me like what a perfect day of fishing would be, it would be out, uh, you know, in the state of Pennsylvania and some of these musky waters or anywhere and just basically targeting and, and, and catching a couple of musky on a fly. I mean, that's pretty much what I, I love to do. So I'm hoping to get a little bit better with the musky game and then also with the warm water game, like the, the smallmouth fishing and so forth. So there's a lot of things on the plate. I have a big bucket list. There's a lot of things I want to, you know, I'd like to do two hand casting, but again, you pick your lane. So I definitely have a five and 10 year plan when it comes to things I want to learn. And then also things I want to work on, but just trying to keep that structure and then just trying to, to work on those things systematically. And when I feel like I've done well with one, then, it'll be time to kind of move over into the next thing, but there's definitely a, a 10 year plan I have. So for the next few years. Yeah. And that's even before we get to show season, which will be here before you know it. Oh yes, exactly. Yeah. Where, where are you going to be um, in the early part of 2020? So people can, uh, can catch up with you and get a book signed and meet you. No, that's great. I, I would, I need to update my website. I, I don't really, for a couple of reasons, I don't always tell people where I'm going to be, but in short, I'm going to do, all the fly fishing shows on the East coast. So I'll be in Massachusetts. I'll be in Jersey. I'll be in, uh, I'll be in, uh, Atlanta and I'll be in Lancaster as well. And then there are, again, I need to update my, my calendar, but I will be all over the United States, uh, anything from January until, uh, basically December of next year doing clinics, seminars and talks. So, uh, probably in the next couple of weeks, I will actually on my website, I will have a, a calendar, and, and list of things I'll be doing, but I have a, a full play already lined up for next year and already a good number of things on the, on the books for uh, 2021. Very neat. And I'll put a link to your calendar in the show notes. So whenever folks listen to this, they'll be able to just reach out and kind of see the, the current lay of the land. And um, before I let you go, why don't you let folks know one, where, where there's the best place for them to find your books. And then secondly, where they can find out more about living on the fly and the best way to, to reach out to you. Yeah, so uh, books, you can go on the Amazon, or if you want to, you can go, excuse me, through the TCO Fly Shop, uh, my local fly shop, they're the people who I've worked with for years. So either Amazon or TCO Fly Shop. Uh, if you want to sign books, you can definitely go through TCO Fly Shop. Um, and then uh, my, my website is just L-I-V-I-N, on the fly, just living on the fly. And that kind of gives you a little bit about what I do and some of the programs and uh, a little bit more about my my teaching and, and coaching philosophy as it relates to fly fishing. And that's, that's about it. Great. And in terms of booking you, are you a phone guy or are you an email guy? Everything. Uh, I, I do. I mean, I do. Yeah, I do. Uh, my, my Instagram account, uh, even through YouTube, I've had people e- uh, email me through, uh, or message me through YouTube. So, uh, any means possible, any of the networks that I, I use as channels, as delivery devices for information, uh, people will reach out to me and I will be usually pretty fast to respond. 
perfect. Well, George, I really appreciate you spending some time with me this evening. It's been a lot of fun. No, thank you, Marvin. I really appreciate the opportunity. It'll be great, and I'll 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 see you in Atlanta for sure. Look, looking forward to it. Tight lines, everybody. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, a shout out to this episode's sponsor, the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. It's January 11th and 12th in Doswell, Virginia. Go check out www.vaflyfishingfestival.org. And thanks, folks, for being a listener. If you like this episode, please leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. Or even better, check out the Articulate Fly apps. Have a happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Tight lines. Tight lines.